It's about time because we're going there. Shalom, hola, bonjour, and hello to all my homies. I've seen some data from our listeners across the world, and we have a fair amount of listeners listening in from the Holy Land. So, shalom, shalom, brachatov. Today, we are chatting about something that is so crucial to transformation of heart, mind, and soul. And I just want to take a quick moment to say thank you for transforming my heart. Every time I get to write a podcast and do a podcast and interview people, I know that this is going into ears of those around the world. So thanks for listening. I really appreciate you. Now, before we jump into the podcast, let me first tell you about a story about quinoa. When Matt and I first got married, we went to dinner at one of his friend's house and his wife was a total health nut. She made us a vegan dinner and a special dish of quinoa. Now, call me crazy, but growing up in a Hispanic household, I'd never seen quinoa cooked or raw. But in the moment I ate the tasty protein packed superfood, I was hooked on this stuff. So this episode will be like quinoa. Maybe you never ate it or knew the amazing qualities of it, but it will do good for your soul. So trust me, let's talk about transformation. Well, we'll never be perfect on this side of eternity. God is at work spiritually transforming us. In fact, the way that Paul expressed it to the Galatians, he said this in Galatians 4.19. He said, my dear children, for whom I am again in pains of childbirth. Paul's not dramatic at all. I mean, I'm here for it, Paul. It for whom I am again in pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. The term for form that Paul uses is the Greek word morphu, which is closely related to metamorphu the word transform. The change that believers experience in Christ Jesus is metamorphosis. It's a spiritual transformation. This work is not accomplished by our own efforts, as in we cannot will or force this metamorphosis, but we do participate in it. See, spiritual formation is the intentional communal process of growing in our relationship with God and becoming conformed to Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. Spiritual disciplines enable us to maintain that connection to Jesus, that connection to God, that connection to his voice and therefore our calling. As that connection is maintained, fruit is produced in us. Typically, spiritual disciplines are physical activities that empower us spiritually. For instance, I deny my physical appetite through the act of fasting and I can increase my spiritual clarity. This can empower my prayers and give me more wisdom and guidance. Dun, dun, dun. That's the fruit of my life. In fact, ever since I did this interview with John Mark Comer, Actually, I'm lying. Ever since I met him in real life, not just online, and attended his Art of Teaching workshop in Portland, I have been fascinated with fasting. I've read his stuff on fasting. I'm wildly impressed with it. And I've made a commitment to fast once a week. And then I'm fasting. I'm fasting for my marriage. I'm fasting for my stepkids. I'm fasting for the church. I'm fasting for my own life. I need wisdom and guidance that only God can give. And every time that I'm feeling a physical lack, a physical desire, That is my body growing out for communion with God. And like athletes that train themselves to exceed their physical limits, spiritual exercises enable us to do what we're unable to do by our own effort. As we invest our energy in developing spiritual disciplines, we partner with God in our growth and transformation. And then we can grow in his grace and produce fruit. That is what I want. John Mark Homer, I'm so excited that you are on the show. I'm trying not to geek out. So thank you for your time. It is my joy to be with you. I just wish I was down. It's pouring rain up in Portland, Oregon today, and Orange County is sounding. I'm telling you, sounding it's, good, it's the promised land. It's the promised know, land. If you ever want to move. I want to hear about, do you know I turned down a job many, well, it wasn't like an official job offer, but I had a chance to move to Orange County many years ago. 
uh, when I had decided, I think I want to step down from leading a church and just serve as a teaching pastor. But I, and I had this incredible opportunity, Orange County, we literally drove around like imagining ourselves there as a family, but no, no permission from the spirit. Okay. So. Well, I mean, we're not even, we're starting the podcast here. This is not even in my notes, but I feel like it's fair <laughs> to, it's fair to manipulate this podcast right now because I do know that you just transitioned off of your home church after 18 mm -hmm. years yeah. of leading, which first of all, kudos, because that's hard labor and beautiful labor and gloriously devastating all at the same time. So congratulations. But let me also throw, if you do feel called to Orange County, <laughs> brother, there's a I'm church a called the Father's now. House, Orange <laughs> County, and you have a standing invite. No, legit. Okay. The podcast listeners, y'all my witnesses. John Mark Homer, if you are ever in Orange County, you have a standing invite to preach at our church. Amen. Hallelujah. Okay. I'll take it. Hands down. Right now, the answer is no, but check back in February in the heart of winter. And the answer will likely be yes, Jesus, please. I love it. I love around. it. Okay. So a little bit of background. I have heard about you. I have read some of your stuff back in the day, but I think more, more so recently, my husband and I started a church in Orange County. We just celebrated mm -hmm. three years and congratulations um, thank and you. well done. Thank you. Thank you. It, it, it has definitely been hard, uh, yeah, but good. no small <laughs> accomplishment and not accomplishment in the human endeavor sense, but well done for saying thank you. yes to thank such you. a challenging task. I appreciate that. Thank you for noticing. And thank you for knowing, actually. Thank you for knowing the cost. But I have been in this season where I'm teaching um, a lot at church. And I think I've always wrestled with the call that God has put on my life. And I'm feeling inept, really inept. So undergrad and graduate degrees are from secular institutions. So, I mean, it, I don't feel formally theologically trained. And you and and, and John Tyson hosted a workshop called Art of Teaching there in Portland, and I got to go. It was life-changing, friend. It was an honor to have you. Uh, there were like whispers like, do you know that Bianca is coming to this event? Yeah. The a, devil is a liar. Do not deal. lie on this podcast. No, brother. and it was like first name only. Like you've achieved like a whole new level. <laughs> okay, and literally I'm like schwitzing right you. now. I'm like sweating from embarrassment. That's so not true because I walked in. Okay, let me tell you something. Let me tell you something. Oh, I'm geeking out. All my homeschool dorkiness is coming out right now. Wait, you were homeschooled. Yes, brother. And Me we have too. both pastors. I know. No, I know. do you have both a good pastors' kids? Did you? But if you seem so normal and happy and well, don't ask well my husband adjusted. because no, he says every time I'm acting weird, he's just like, your homeschoolness is coming out. And I feel like my homeschoolness <laughs> is coming out right now. Okay. So as I was preparing for this interview, I was like, oh my gosh, John Mark Comer and John Tyson are like the inklings. They're like, you know, C.S. Lewis. And can I be Dorothy Sayers? Can I please? Can I get in? Please. <laughs> You know, she wasn't allowed to be part of the Inklings, but you know, it's the no, 21st century. I don't know century. that story. Seriously? Okay. Well, she wanted to be in and they she said She wanted no? to be in, but it was a boys club. And so yes. she, her writing was respected and she was top at Oxford. And, you know, yes. she had such a theological background. Her father was I a vicar. I just quoted her in my last sermon. She's okay. a genius. She is genius, but she wasn't, it was kind of like the boys club unintentionally maybe, but I want to give them the benefit of the doubt. But I'm just yeah. like, wait a minute. Can we be like Inklings 2.0? Because after, after the art of teaching, for those that don't know, for those that feel like there is a teaching or preaching call upon their life, John Tyson and John Mark Comer, they lifted up the hood of the proverbial preaching car and they showed everyone, not just the engine, not how it works, 
how to build the engine. And so I'm just, this is not even part of the podcast. I'm just saying I left wrecked. It was such a beautiful two days. And so thank you. Thank you. Thank you for everything. I have my Bible right over here, but it's, it's holding up my, my uh, laptop, but inside my Bible is the printout notes of how you outline the sermon. And it's with me oh, that I take every wow. Sunday. So I, when I oh, say that, I appreciate amazing. it. I really do. Okay. Let's get, let's get to some topics that I just party started. Let's yeah. get the party started. Okay. So when I think about work that you are most known for, um, you have a book that's the ruthless elimination of hurry and it's phenomenal. But one of my favorite things about you is your passionate inordinate love for spiritual disciplines. And it was a little bit of context, 2018. I just kind of had a moment after starting the church where I was like, you know, if you have a fever, you put your hand to your head, but if you're not, if your soul's not okay, like, what do you do? So I kind of put my hand to my chest and I said, am I okay? Your work really helped kind of process like soul care. It is my soul. Okay. And so when we talk about spiritual disciplines, I think that that was so much of a learning, learning tools for me. And so when you talk about spiritual disciplines, how do you define it? And what's the implications for our soul and, or our walk with Christ? Yeah. Well, the only, the only, that's very kind. The only pushback I would say there is, I don't know that I have a, a passionate love for spiritual disciplines, though I have come to enjoy most of them, but not all, and not necessarily the ones that I most need. I have a, a inordinate, passionate love for the father and the son and the Holy spirit and for being with God. And at the end of the day, the spiritual disciplines are our means. The end is to be with Jesus and to become like him, to experience the healing of our soul and its formation into the image of Jesus through relationship with the father and by the spirit. So that like, that is what I love disciplines are just means. So I don't really like the language of spiritual disciplines. That's the most popular language. Um, there are other, that's not biblical language. There are other names. I call them the practices of Jesus. Mm-hmm. Ruth Haley Barton calls them sacred rhythms. Some people call them uh, spiritual rhythms. Other people call them holy habits. They are basically just any regular activity that you see in the life and the teachings of Jesus that we adopt as a disciple of Jesus or an apprentice of Jesus as we follow him in an attempt to organize our whole life as he did around what Jesus called abiding in the love of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. You know, Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And a lot has been said in the Western church about how Jesus is the truth. And it's very important. Very little has been said about how he is the way, you know, Mm -hmm. literally he is a way to live. He is a path is what that word literally is in the Greek. He's a roadmap for how to be human and how to live and how to make steady progress into deeper life with the father. So the practices or the spiritual disciplines are anything that you see in the life of Jesus that basically just open you up to the love of the father. So, you know, some of the most famous ones are Sabbath, silence and solitude, prayer, fasting, the reading of scripture, uh, living with simplicity, generosity, hospitality. These are all serving the poor. These are all kind of the basics of what ancient Christians called a rule of life, which which is not common language at all today. It means like a life architecture that's designed to make 
experiencing the father's love and being transformed by him, the center point of your entire life. Mm. Okay. So when you talk about some of these uh, disciplines or holy rhythms, um, one of them is fasting. And I listened to a talk that you did. I actually don't know when you did it, but Annie Downs is a mutual friend of ours. And she sent it to me because I had some questions about it. And then I started reading this one book um, about fasting. And so when we talk about- Which book was it? It's it's actually, hold on, don't move, don't move. It is the nine- Biblical fast. Does that sound familiar to you? No, that's why I'm asking. Because if there's a good book that I don't know about, I want to read it. Okay, it is. And he talks about every single fast that's listed in the Bible. And I know that producer Madi is going to hate me because I'm shaking. The... Here we go. Fasting for Spiritual Breakthrough, The Practical Guide to Nine Biblical Fast by Dr. Elmer Towns. It was recommended to me by a pastor friend. And it takes the different varying uh, fasts that we see throughout the Bible and how to implement it into our life. It's fascinating. It's fascinating. So, but then, then I heard you actually practice fasting every single week, right? Yes. Okay. I want to know, like, clearly you implement. I mean, a, a mild form of fasting, but yes. Okay. So for, for someone out there, that's like, wait a minute, I don't even fast once a year. I don't fast once a decade, like right. walk, walk me through what brought this on? And then what does that look like in your weekly life? Yeah. Um, gosh, there's so much great stuff we could chat about. Uh, oh, where to even start? Yeah, I'm the same. I did not grow up in a church paradigm. Grew up in a great family of origin, good church experience in California, land of my birth, land of promise. But fasting was just not on my radar. I remember my parents would occasionally fast when they were making a major decision. So that was my one, which, which is great. That's a good thing to do. And that was my one kind of paradigm for fasting. I never really understood a, a reason why behind it. It definitely wasn't like in a, you know, a rule of life in the sense of a, a regular or a weekly kind of practice or something. And so, and I didn't really understand the reasons behind fasting or what's the point even. And I didn't realize that prior until very recently, fasting was considered one of like the core practices or spiritual disciplines of following Jesus, really for about 1500 years. I mean, the early church, for example, for hundreds upon hundreds of years, a part of the most common kind of basic rule of life was Christians would fast every single Wednesday and Friday, every single week, they would just go without basically two meals, they would wait to not eat until after sundown, and they would eat one meal late in the day. I didn't know this, but Lent, um, for those that know anything about like a traditional church calendar, Lent is the 40 days leading up to Easter that is celebrated by some traditions of the church, not all. But in the early church, Lent was like Ramadan is in Islam. It was basically 40 days where you did not eat until after sundown every single day for 40 days. Every Christian, every church for 40 days once a year. So that was like not even remotely on my radar screen. And there's all sorts of reasons why fasting has been kind of lost in Western culture. I think the most common one is just, you know, if you know anything about Western philosophy, there's this guy, Rene Descartes, who has this famous saying that I'm sure you'll recognize, I think, therefore I, I am. <laughs> and behind that's a whole worldview that basically understands human beings to be kind of brains on legs. You know, he called human beings thinking things. And he was actually a Christian intellectual who was defending the Christian faith with that statement. Wasn't a bad guy, 
but it's a it's a worldview shaped on Descartes' view of I think, therefore I am. So much of like the Western church's approach to discipleship and to formation is like, let us get you to think the right things, the right Bible study, the right doctrine, the right ideas, and then that will transform you. There's enough truth in that to get away with saying it, you know, Romans 12, do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So your mind and your thought life, a ton of my most recent book is all about this. It's crucial, but taken as a whole, that is not uh, a sufficient model of discipleship. Information alone does not yield transformation. This is just basic common sense and personal experience. So for Westerners, it's hard for us to fathom fasting which is just not eating that's all it is like people use that word for other for other forms of abstinence like i'm fasting from instagram or i'm fasting from alcohol or i'm fasting from entertainment um that's all great stuff abstinence has a long history in christian spirituality it's a good thing that's not fasting um literally it's not it's not what fasting is fasting is going without food not eating. Uh, most people just drink water, though there are some fasts where there's no water. There's obviously shorter fasts. And in order to, there's multiple reasons that you fast, but to, you know, put at a very high level to kind of feed on God. Westerners, we really struggle with that because we can't fathom a way of God transforming us, not through our mind. So if I said, hey, once a week, listen to a sermon or listen to a podcast like this one, or read a book uh, in order to be transformed, everybody'd be like, yeah, it makes perfect sense. But if I said once a week, go without food until the sun goes down and do nothing with your mind, just go about your day and pray and fasting is praying with your body. That's all it is. Just let your body's hunger pains be your prayer to God. And we would be like, what are you talking about? We can't even fathom God transforming us through our stomach, not through our mind, through a pain in our body, not through a thought in our imagination or word on our tongue or an experience with our community. But fasting is incredibly powerful. It is one of the most transformed. Working fasting into my regular life has been one of the most transformative things I've ever done. Now, like all spiritual disciplines, spiritual disciplines don't transform you. Jesus transforms you, but he uses them. They're, you know, uh, reformed thinkers call them means of grace. They're how God does his work of healing us and saving us and delivering us. They're how we offer our bodies to God as a living sacrifice. How we just say, and that's Romans 12, God, here I am. Like I'm giving you these next couple of meals I'm missing. I'm giving you this time of reading scripture. I'm giving you this day of rest and Sabbath. I'm giving you this act of hospitality. I'm giving you this worship experience on Sunday. I'm giving you you know, time with my friends around a table to eat a meal together and, and pray for each other. We're just giving, we don't control the outcomes. We don't control our formation. We don't control our spiritual life, which is one of the hardest lessons that American Christians have to ever learn is that you're not in control in your relationship with God and you're not in control of your formation. Man, that is like weaning Americans off a drug like we're addicted to. But through the disciplines, we learn to let go of outcomes, let go of our own even morality, let go of our own and just lay all that we are before God, yield and surrender to God for him to love us and heal us and rescue us and transform us. And fasting is a way of doing that, just praying with your body, saying, here I am, God. And it's a hard one. You know, Richard Foster in his chapter on fasting in his famous book, The Celebration and Discipline, said fasting more than any other discipline reveals the things that control us. 
And when you fast, like all the stuff that's in your heart will come up similar to silence and solitude. It's and often similar to rest, which is why so many people are chronically noisy, chronically busy and chronically overeat. Because when we take away those things, what's deep in our heart will often come to the surface. Now it's already there and it's already sabotaging our life and our relationships, but we want to medicate it through noise and busyness and work and success and upward mobility and food and alcohol or whatever it is, distraction. When we fast, like these things often will feel angry or feel anxious and it'll help us actually discern, oh, actually, I don't think I'm just hangry. I think actually I'm mad because of this thing that happened last month, or I'm actually really anxious about this, this event coming up in three days. And actually, because my heart is attached to almost like an idol deep below the surface of my heart, and I'm actually enslaved to this thing or my life going a certain way or this, this specific outcome working out. And if I don't have it, I won't be happy. And fasting is an incredible way to train your body and with it, your whole soul to be happy and content and at peace, even when you don't get what you want. And that is true freedom. This is what I will say. When I was in my twenties, I read how now shall we live by Chuck Colson and Nancy Piercy, and it changed my worldview. And now that I'm going into my forties, I am, I read your book, your most recent one. And I feel like it's reshaping so much of my faith and ideology when it comes to spiritual warfare, mm. the devil, God. And so I feel like I would be honored if we spent time unpacking just some of your recent stuff. Okay. This is what I will say. You read more than anyone else I know on the face of the earth. In fact, <laughs> when I left the art of teaching workshop in all the right ways, in all the right ways, I have never felt so dumb in my life. Oh. Oh, wait, no, wait, I'm hold so on. Sorry. I wrote, no, 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 friend, friend. I wrote down these words that not only you said multiple times at the workshop, but in your book, swath. You say swath often. Do you know that? Uh oh. You know that's that not you, say, no you say no should stick erudite. Out. That's, a... <laughs> that's in the book. Hold on. This is my favorite. I don't even know if I'm going to pronounce this right. Compedium. Did yes, I, that I like that. I do like that word. I know. You say it yes. at the workshop. You also wrote it in your book, but you read desert fathers and desert mothers. And you quote people like Avagrius and Ignatius. And I need people to kind of slow step into some of the topics that you unpack in your new work. So that's yes. why I wanted to talk about fasting, because when we talk about fasting, it's easy to be like, okay, don't eat a meal or don't for, eat for a day, but we're, we're not understanding the why behind it. And yes. so I do want to unpack just this one more thing. It's my favorite thing that you talk about. And I've really been on a journey to try to bring in Sabbath into my life. I didn't realize scripture is very clear about the importance of Sabbath and like honoring Sabbath and like treating it so importantly. And I just feel within our Western culture and then me and Enneagram seven, I love to have fun. Let's be busy. Yes. Let's throw parties. The idea of stillness, honestly, kind of frightened me. The idea of stopping and not producing made me feel lazy. I'm a daughter of an immigrant. Like we just work hard all the time. And I've been super convicted by some of the stuff that you've been coming out with and discussing. So can we unpack a little bit of Sabbath and then we're going to jump into some other things, but I just want people to get to know kind of how your mind thinks before we talk about this new work, which I think you're taking us into the nine feet, baby. You're taking us to the deep end of the pool. So <laughs> unpack a little bit about Sabbath. Cause then I, I do feel like some, I want people to understand like your background before we talk about what you're coming up with recently. 
If you're a fan of romantic movies and love films with beautiful cinematography, you have to check out Redeeming Love, coming in theaters January 2022. Based on the international best-selling novel by Francine Rivers, the movie takes place in 19th century California and follows the life of a girl named Angel, who is the most notoriously sought-after girl in a hopeless gold-mining town called Paradise. Right as she's about to give up on finding love, Angel meets Michael and encounters a love unlike anything else. But shame of her past causes Angel to run away from the very thing she's always wanted. As Michael sets out to find love, Angel discovers that there's no brokenness that love cannot heal. A couple of actors in the film are Abigail Cowan, Nina Dobrev, Eric Dane, Famkit Jassen, and is rated PG-13. Mark your calendars. It comes out January 21st nationwide. So invite your friends and go check out Redeeming Love. For more information, you can check out redeeminglovemovie.com. Yeah, I mean, I'm happy to. Sabbath has also transformed my life. And I think similar to you, I did not, I did grow up in the church. Thank God I did not grow up in a church where, I mean, Sabbath was like, isn't that for Jewish people? Or um, we did, I am just old enough. And I came from a Christian enough home that I remember a life architecture where Sunday was the Lord's day. Like I remember in my family on Saturday night, we would never watch a movie. Like my family was a big, like family movie night kind of family. Um, but on Saturday night, there was no movie because it, we wanted to prepare for what my parents called the Lord's Day. And Sunday was like, you're up. And like, that's a day that is devoted to God. Now, because my dad was a pastor and the church we were in, that meant church like for 12 hours straight, you know, because we were at like one of the first mega churches in America. So they're like, morning gatherings like multiple morning gatherings then there was a sunday school sunday hour <laughs> then there was sunday night so literally we like the if same, same church Christian, background we do yeah it was three times on a sunday not yes. once not twice three times and then don't know? forget midweek so, did you go to midweek oh 120 percent a wednesday night bible study yep and don't forget choir practice on thursday night ours and, was friday you know. ours was friday yep <laughs> <laughs> so and i mean i laugh about it but on a positive sense it was, it was, I, I don't know, but I'm sure that was formative in me at a young yeah. age, you know? Yeah. And, it, and we laugh about it now, but think about the amount of time that most people spend on Instagram. It's more than all of that every week on average, two and a half hours a day for millennial. Think about the time that people spend watching content on Hulu and Netflix on average, four and a half hours per day. You think that's not forming you? You think that's not discipling you? You think that's not turning you into somebody? And then church every other week or every third week for an hour and a half is going to counterbalance all of that and all the worldly ideologies that seep through that stuff like a digital IV? No way. So I'm, I, I laugh about it now, but I'm also grateful for it. I'm grateful that I don't drag my children to church three times on a Sunday, but I'm, I'm grateful for it. But Sabbath was not in my repertoire. It was not on my radar. I came to it much later in life through a, a few books I found. And again, I, I, I've, I've developed both a discipline and a love for reading over the years. I honestly, am not like the beauty of a book is you can sound way smarter than you really are, which I like, <laughs> at least my <laughs> ego does. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm bright, but I'm not a brilliant intellectual. I did poorly in school. I went to a lousy college. Um, you know, much of these disciplines are just a couple of decades of, of really disciplined reading and thinking and living in a really difficult city that's just constantly sharpening the edge of the spear as far as your thinking as a Christian. And, uh, you know, the mind is a muscle. All the new science on neuroplasticity, you know, is extraordinary. Like you can, you can get smarter. I mean, all of us have our own DNA and how God wired us and not all of us are wired in that, you know, way. I'm a writer, I'm a thinker, I'm a teacher. So of course I'm wired to, 
you know, kind of really prioritize the life of the mind. But if you'd met me when I was younger, I was just like playing in rock bands and, you know, just riding my, driving my Volkswagen bus around and playing electric guitar. I was not like a, nobody would have ever called me an intellectual or a thinker or very smart or anything, you know? So not that I am now, I'm just saying the mind is a muscle. So uh, I came to Sabbath through reading and it, very long story short, it, it God used it to transform my life, my emotional experience of life, my marriage, our family's experience. And by the grace of God, we found our way into the practice of Sabbath when our kids were, uh, I mean, like babies. And so they've grown up in it, which has just really given shape to our family's life together. No matter how stressful or hard a week is, we know we have a full 24 hour time period where the phones are off and I'm not working and we're not doing anything. We're just together as a family resting and delighting in God. But that's what Sabbath is. It is basically, it's one of the 10 commandments. And uh, to remember the Sabbath day, it's a full 24 hour day where you do nothing but stop and rest and delight and worship. So it's not necessarily a somber day. It's a day for great joy. It's almost like it's a holiday, like a holy day. It's almost like a weekly mini Christmas or something like that without all the stress and shopping. But it starts long before it's a commandment. It starts in the first page of the Bible when God creates the heavens and the earth in six days. And there's different interpretations of that. Is that literal? Is that a symbolic number? Is this history? Is this mythology? And those are really questions not about whether or not the Bible is true. They're questions about genre of literature and how you read different genres with different interpretations. But either way, in that story, God works for six days. And then the seventh is the Sabbath. He, he stops. He stops working. And he rests. And he blesses the Sabbath day. And he calls it holy. There's so much theology here. I don't have time to unpack about how this day is literally blessed by God. What is a blessing? It's when, when God implants life in you and the ability to make more life. That's what the Sabbath does. It, it fills us with new life and new energy and new resources to make more life in the world. It's holy. It's a day that's dedicated to God. So the Sabbath is not just like another day off where we play or watch TV or go shopping or do all the work we don't get paid for around the house. It is a holy day that is literally a spiritual discipline. You give it to God and say, we say this every Friday night, at the beginning of our family Sabbath, God, we give you this day. We're not in control of outcomes, whether this is a great day or a bad day, the best day of our week, or we're sad, or we just give this to you and just say, God, here it is. Take us, take this day, use it to transform us and bring us closer to you and to each other. So that's what it is. It's just a day that is literally in the Genesis story Long before it's a command, it is woven into the fabric of creation. It's almost like a rhythm. And if you think about it, why has every human civilization landed basically on a seven-day week, which is really interesting. Unlike the new moon, that's not based on the lunar cycle. The seven-day week, every attempt to change it has been a colossal disaster in France in the French Revolution. They tried to elongate the week to 10 days to get more work for the proletariat and all that kind of stuff. And it was a disaster. Productivity actually plummeted. Suicide rate spiked across the nation. It was a social disaster. So there's something, scientists talk about how every seven days your body needs to sleep in, which is why on the weekend, like you just naturally kind of start to sleep in because you need to catch up on rest. There's, there's like this internal clock built into the human body, human civilization and the earth itself that says work is a good thing, but too much work, too much of anything is not good. Six days you work, then there is a day built into the fabric of creation to just rest and delight in God and your life before him. So Sabbath is nine times out of 10, the best day of my week. 
I look forward to it all week. I kind of measure my life and how many days till Sabbath or how many days post Sabbath, <laughs> you know, that's kind of almost my experience of life now. So I will, I will admit I am not at your level of full shutdown, complete, you know, everything's put away. I'm not there yet, but I am building pathways for me to get there because I look, I, I listen to you talk about Sabbath, the importance of it. And I, that's what I, that's what I want. That's what I crave. Um, yeah. I think uh, one of the things that I've really enjoyed about your most recent book is you talk about the enemies to our peace. And so will you walk us through the three enemies of peace that you identify in your new book? My dear friend, New York Times bestselling author and podcast host Annie F. Downs is heading out on her Coast to Coast That Sounds Fun tour this spring, and she wants you to be there. These nights are going to be so much fun with special guests, live podcast interviews, comedy giveaways, confetti, and of course, so much more. It's Annie. The tour will be making stops in Atlanta, Philadelphia, Seattle, Denver, and so many more cities. You don't want to miss it. For tickets and to see the full list of cities and dates, go to AnnieFDowns.com. That's AnnieFDowns.com for tickets and dates and more details. Can't wait to see you there. Yeah. And we could even talk about Sabbath because I did not put Sabbath in the book because I've written about it so much in previous books, but man, I have lots of thoughts about the enemies and Sabbath. Yeah. Uh, the book is, this is not like why the re why you read the book, but the wireframe of the book, it's based around uh, this ancient Christian paradigm from a group called the desert fathers and mothers, which were a group of just very serious Christians in the third and the fourth century AD, who kind of left Roman civilization to go out into the deserts, really of North Africa and a few other places and devote their entire life to prayer and quiet and living humbly together in community. Uh, out of this came the monastic kind of movement of monks and nuns and stuff like that over the next millennium. And these desert fathers and mothers, many of them were just utter geniuses, brilliant theologians, writers, and their experience of God, because they literally gave decades of their life to basically do nothing but pray. I mean, man, their experience of God, their depth of insight into prayer, into life with God, into the inner dynamics of the soul is extraordinary. I mean, you read this stuff and it's from, you know, one of the main books that I quote in my most recent book was written, I think, 353 or something like that, A.D., and its level of genius, I mean, it sounds smarter than any modern author I've ever read. Its level of genius, insight, wisdom, it's extraordinary. And uh, they identified, for them, spirituality was not like a walk in the park. It was like, uh, it was a struggle. It was like there was a, a counterforce as you began to attempt to move toward God and toward becoming a person of love in God. It's like there was opposition that you were facing. There was some kind of like pushback almost in the atmosphere against you that made it hard. It's like it was like walking into a howling wind or walking up a mountain. It wasn't like it wasn't a walk in the park. And that alone right there, by the way, is a fascinating insight that we could come back to. But they identified three, this, this opposition, this kind of counter pushback, they identified what they called the three enemies of the soul that, that, that they were fighting against in prayer and in their discipleship to Jesus. And they identified these three enemies of the soul, which in their mind were almost like a counter trinity to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit that we call God. And they identified them as the world, the flesh, and the devil. So that's the wireframe for my book as I kind of explore each of these ancient concepts, which most of us laugh at or scratch our head at or think are, sounds ridiculous. 
but I actually argued that their insight into reality was, was more intelligent than our own. And we have a lot to learn um, about these three enemies and the way they oppose our movement forward into life with God, into peace and joy, and into becoming people of love. So I think the thing that I love the most about it is that it, you're not, I can't say a covert message because it's not covert. It's, it's there, but the spiritual warfare component that you're talking about in this book, yeah. it's, it's, it did, it doesn't feel like one of those like turn or burn or like be careful of the devil books. <laughs> but, but I feel like you do such a great job at kind of demystifying and going deep about this understanding of like who Satan is and the devil and their, and in his impact on our lives in the everyday. One of the things that I just really loved is you had said uh, following Jesus isn't as much as being a student and as much as it's being like a warrior or a soldier. And I think that that's what our, my generation needs. This isn't easy. Yes. Following Jesus isn't easy. And it's I wanted to not frame, easy. It's not. It's not. And, I and to- so there's so much Christian self-help, as you know, there's a whole industry designed to make millions of dollars off of it. And it is, a, it is a recipe for disillusionment at best and a crisis of faith at worst, because then Christian spirituality or following Jesus or Christianity, whatever you want to call it, just becomes like a Christian version of Project Me, Project Self. And then you end up more enslaved to yourself rather than the whole point of Christian spirituality, which is to die to yourself in order to experience freedom from yourself to live in God. And, uh, you know, there's a book I love uh, that's old now called The Road Less Traveled by M. Scott Peck. I don't know if you've ever come across that. It was famous back in the day. He was a a best-selling author. He was a kind of nationally renowned psychologist. That's not even a Christian book, though he became a Christian later in life after writing this book. But in the opening page, so it's basically kind of a, it's a psychology book, but it's a popular level kind of self-help book, but it's really good. And his opening line is, life is difficult. And then he just makes the point on page one that life is difficult. Life is hard. I don't care where you come from or how much privilege you have or what life is hard. But if you expect life to be easy, as most Americans do, in particular, middle-class Americans in the mainstream of American culture, they expect life to be easy, expect life to be good and get better. Even in the church, you hear language like the best is yet to come which is kind of true, depending on how you interpret that statement. I would never use that language. There's truth in it for sure. But, ooh, man, is that open to misinterpretation. But there's this kind of sense that life will trend up and to the right, that life is good and it will get better and it will be kind of easy and we'll do it. The reality is that life is very hard. And I don't care how much money you have or technology you have, or it is just full of suffering and pain. And so he pointed out, you know, that when that's your mindset, you expect life to be easy, you'll become neurotic. Psychologists define neuroticism as when you suffer more than you need to. I love that definition because we all suffer, but a lot of us suffer more than we need to. Another way to say that some psychologists distinguish between suffering and pain. Suffering is what is. I was born in this traumatic family. I've experienced racism. I lost my job. I lost a loved one to COVID-19. That, that is, that's what is. Pain is our emotional experience of what is based upon our interpretation of it. Wow. Whether or not God's abandoned us, our life is now over, we'll never be happy again, I'll never recover from this divorce, I'm wounded, I'm dirty now, I'm, I'm broken goods. Like That's all pain. 
that isn't just the suffering. That's our interpretation of it has created an emotional experience of it that now is a narrative we start living into. So when you expect life to be easy, you become neurotic. And then M. Scott Peck said, but when you expect life to be difficult, most people still conclude that, yeah, life is hard, but overall it's really good and worth living and full of joy. So I think in a similar way to borrow his kind of rubric, if you expect following Jesus to be easy, you are going to be spiritually neurotic and you are going to suffer. We all suffer, but you're going to suffer way more than you need to. And you're going to have disillusionment and disenfranchisement, if not a full on crisis of faith, because you were sold. This is Christian self-help life trending up and to the right, not come take up your cross and follow me, which is what Jesus said. But if you expect following Jesus to be hard and a form of suffering love, what some people have called downward spirituality, you will likely conclude that it is, but it is so worth living. It is the best way to live. There's no one and nothing better than Jesus Christ. I mean, he is literally what we were made for and life with him is full of joy. So I think that's kind of what I'm trying to do with the book is reset expectations, not in a depressing way at all. And you're already experiencing this way. Wake up, engage, fight back, make progress forward and come to actually have joy and peace, even in the midst of this opposition. Okay. So there's, there's so much, I feel like my, my brain is exploding side note for all the podcast listeners. I'm keeping tally when John Mark says, so I read this book. And as of right now, we are just 40 minutes in and he's mentioned this seven times. So when oh, I say that this I'm man sorry. reads, that's just because reads. I'm trying to I'm tr- credit to where credit is due. I've been so shaped by books and I don't want to be a plagiarist. I want to honor, you know, the oh, people it's, that have, it's lovely have shaped my thinking. Oh, no, it's so good. And side note, after leaving the workshop, I have since read six books in uh Oh, there you go. Yes. I'm, maybe it's competitive. Maybe it's, maybe it's just exciting. I don't know. Um, has That's we, okay. We, Beat me. I love it. I love it. I know that we have to end soon, but I think one of the most beautiful like flips that you do in the book is you quote Ignatius's definition of sin. Yeah. I'm going to read I it slowly this. because I need people to understand it. And then I'll give them your response. But he says, we sin because we believe a lie about what will make us happy. If that is not the state of the American church, I don't know what else to say. And then you say, sin sabotages our capacity for happiness. And I'm going to say that again. Sin sabotages our capacity for happiness by appealing to our God-given desire for happiness via deceptive ideas. And I feel like we've been sold a faulty bill of goods And people are walking away from church in droves because they feel disappointed by God. And what this book does, it just, it, I feel like you've put toothpicks in our eyes, like open your eyes. We are not, we are in war. There is an enemy and this life, if you give your life away, it's worth it. Now, I, I love your words. I love your work. But for somebody that's kind of like listening to this and maybe they feel like it might be too deep, it might be a little bit too wide. What's your heart? Like, why did you write this book? And why would you want this book to be in somebody's hands? And side note, everyone who listens to the podcast know I do not bring on people whose books I have not read or do not love. 
And so I have read this book and I only talk about books that really have shaped and impacted my life. So for somebody that's out there, that's kind of like, Oh, he's really bright. And he uses the word swath often. Like, I'm not too sure he's my author. Um, what would you tell them about this book and like your why behind writing it? <laughs> Again, well, you're very kind. There's not one reason for writing it. There are multiple, but I'm a pastor. I care about my own transformation into a person of love and joy and peace and that of the people that I get to love and serve in our church. And um, I just do not believe that sin leads to human flourishing or happiness, nor can it ever. It leads to the opposite in biblical language to death. You know, there's a famous line in the book of Romans that the wages of sin is death. And some people interpret that to mean that like God pays you back by killing you if you sin. Another way to read that is that sinning is like drinking cyanide. It's mm. sin, the wages of sin is death, not the wages of God for sin is death. The wages of sin is death. It literally opens our bodies to death and to destruction and to pain under the guise of helping us and healing us and making us happy. And, and that's where, you know, I mean, to the point you quoted the Ignatius of Loyola line, you know, sin is unwillingness to trust that what God wants for me is only my deepest happiness. None of us sin out of duty or discipline. None of us are like, okay, Thursday, 4 p.m., time to gossip. I just, I, you know, um, here's another book recommendation, Atomic Habits by James Clear, one of the most best-selling books, self-help books in years, all about the power of habit. So I, I really want to become an untrustworthy person that is lonely and alienated from other people. Nobody feels safe around. And so I just want to become a chronic gossiper. So I don't really feel like it, but it's 4 p.m. I need to get my gossip on. Like I just, I'm committed to this new habit. No, none of us do that. We, that, that's one very, you know, what we consider a minor sin that almost all of us engage in. Why? Because we're actually deeply insecure about our own goodness. And when we gossip about another, I mean, one of the core human questions is, am I good? And when we gossip about another person, it's all moral. Every single thing we say is moral. Oh, did you know this about that person? Oh, they're not actually good. They're not, oh, they're not actually as good as we are. And this is like our deep human vulnerability. That's one example out of a thousand plus examples. But I, I think that following Jesus is the way to life. And I think that following our own heart and the way of the world and what's common in our culture on both the right and the left is, is the way to death. So I wrote this book because if you take Jesus seriously, you have to take this concept of the devil seriously. And in Jesus teaching on the devil, the devil's primary strategy against us, war against us, if you want to use that language. And this is again, what the desert fathers and mothers said too, is to implant lies in our mind about what will make us happy and to deceive us in the language of Jesus. Jesus called him the father of lies, said when he lies, he speaks his native language for there is no truth in him. That's in the same passage where Jesus said his famous line, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. And if you reverse engineer that, he was simultaneously saying we're in bondage to lies. We are literally enslaved to deceptive ideas about what we think will lead us to a happy life. And Jesus came to set us free with truth and trust in him and his love and his wisdom. And, and that's what obedience to Jesus is. It's trusting his definition of goodness and his pathway to life over those of our culture and even those in our own brain and heart. And I just find Jesus to be so trustworthy. So I wanted to write a book that I see so many 
people that identify as Christians, but are not really traveling the spiritual journey with Christ and are not experiencing transformation on him. And many of them are being co-opted by the world. There's a right version of that. There's a left version of that. There's a millennial version of that. There's a boomer version of that. There's a Gen Z version of that. But I see so many people fall away or just not make progress forward. And it's just, there's a grief in my heart. And I wanted to write a book that would almost be like an expose on the ideas that are so common in our culture, but that are actually lies that are not true, that, that keep us in bondage to sin and keep us from the happiness and the wholeness and the life that is found with the Father and the Son and the Spirit. And so that's what I'm trying to do in this book is kind of expose those lies in order to help people experience freedom and, and rediscover just how beautiful Jesus is and move forward in discipleship to him. Well, I just, I'm so grateful for you. I'm so grateful for your words. I'm so grateful for your sacrifice. Writing isn't easy. It's, it's like, you know, I would like to say it's like birthing a book is like birthing a baby. It takes a lot of time and a lot of love and a lot of effort. Yeah. And so I can't wait for people to get this book into their hands. This as one was always. like triplets or something. Right. Especially with this book. This, this is, this is a mother load right here. Writing, but this if one it's not, not, if it's not triplets, it's like a 12 pound baby. Okay. This is a big <laughs> one. Like that. <laughs> hey, as always, I like to give, uh, listeners copies of the book via Amazon so we could get Amazon oh, sales up wow. and for people to leave positive comments and reviews. So for people who listen to this podcast and shout out John Mark Comer at John Mark Comer online, hey, you can win his book, but I really encourage people to go out and get this book because it's radically changed my, it's changed my mind. It's changed my heart. And most importantly, mm. it's changed my soul. So thank you for your time. I appreciate you. Oh, I'm the one who should be saying thank you. Thanks for having me on. And thanks for all of you who are listening. When I tell you his book, Live No Lives, Changed My Thinking, I'm serious, friends. I hope you invest in your heart, mind, and soul and grab his book to explore more on this topic. If you eat quinoa this week, snap a photo and tag me so we can celebrate how quinoa is transforming our bodies and John Mark Comer is transforming our minds. Love you, friends. <laughs>